Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton councillors have put the wheels in motion to change Main and King Streets to two-way. According to a new poll, many Ontarians want to see change. So why is the PC party way ahead in the polls? Another big hit for abortion rights in the U.S. Rogers has hit another roadblock in their quest to buy Shaw Communications. And some tense moments in Florida when a passenger had to land a plane after the pilot became incapacitated. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Our goal was not to, uh, was not to inconvenience drivers uh, to the point of being unable to go where they're going, but it was a point to to kind of bring attention to it and and make our point a little louder. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice of pedestrian advocate Chris Ritzma, who was on the show yesterday, referring to a protest yesterday in front of Hamilton City Hall that held up traffic for a few minutes, all to highlight pedestrian safety. What we saw inside council chambers was a motion approved to take immediate action to improve safety along Main and King. And one of the two councillors who introduced that motion yesterday is Ward 1 councillor Maureen Wilson, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Maureen. Good morning. The motion uh, asks staff to identify complete streets improvements that can be taken on Main and King. What kind of improvements do you hope to see come back from city staff? Thanks for having me. And it is it is a very good morning. Those improvements are for the purpose of enhancing the safety of motorists, pedestrians and cyclists and the neighborhoods. And they could include um, widening sidewalks, uh, allowing for parking, no right on reds, uh, everything and anything that will help uh, slow down the speed and make it a less hostile place and a safer place. Uh, so what staff is going to come up with is probably going to be in front of councillors sometime next year, I would imagine. There also has to be a discussion with uh, Metrolinx, uh, the Ministry of Transportation, because the LRT is going to be involved in this process. The Highway 403 interchange is obviously going to be involved. Does this all have the potential to bog down this process? No, I've, I've always argued that Hamiltonians are uh, taxpayers of Ontario and the Ministry of Transportation, as the lead on transportation across this province, also has a commitment to safety. Um, and they're going to be wanting to know from the residents of Hamilton, what are our priorities? And I think quite clearly, since the 1950s, residents have been telling us that uh, they want a viable and safe city, and they're looking to us for that direction. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Maureen Wilson, councillor in Ward 1 with the City of Hamilton. And yesterday, councillors approved a motion to ask staff to come back with some uh, ideas on how to improve safety along the Main and King Corridor. We've seen other streets like John, James, for example, Queen going through this process of converting from one way to two way. And it's worked out tremendously. The proof is already in the pudding, right? The proof is in the pudding. And when our streets, uh, those major arterials were converted overnight in the 1950s, we heard voices of of opposition and worry from uh, families, from neighborhoods, and from small businesses, because they knew what it would mean uh, to their their way of life. And in terms of James, uh, that conversion of, of James Street was 
the beginning of its renaissance, to make it a place uh, where people wanted to go, where it wasn't hostile, where it wasn't overly unsafe. Um, and it, it lit a fire. Um, and now it is a, a wonderful roadway. And it's uh, sparked a, a, a great, um, a lot of <laughs> livelihood around there. I get the sense that when Maine especially uh, is converted to two-way, and King really to that uh, to that mm. regard as well, when they're done, I think many people are going to say, we should have done this a while ago. Well, yes, <laughs> but um, it's never, it, it. I think council overwhelmingly gave a, a, a clear uh, direction to staff, and there is a mandate to move forward, and we're, we will do that. Maureen, appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, fighting the good fight and, and making our streets a safer place. Hamilton is a tremendous city that I love very much, and um, it's going to be a safer city for everyone. Absolutely. Maureen Wilson, Councillor Ward 1, City of Hamilton, thanks for joining us, and we'll chat with you down the road. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Talking about Main Street in Hamilton. There was a heated debate at City Council yesterday. There was a protest outside City Hall with pedestrian advocates calling on the city to convert this street to two-way. It's been one way long enough, and it has led to a rash of collisions involving pedestrians. Eleven, count them, eleven pedestrians have now died on city streets so far this year. That is two more than all of last year, which at the time was a 10-year high. We have reached uh, a, a territory we haven't seen in many, many years. And the one-way aspect of Maine and King, where some of these fatal collisions have occurred, that is being targeted as a big reason why. Our Twitter poll question of the day today, you can find it at AM900CHML. Do you want Main Street in Hamilton to be converted to a two-way street through the city's core? Maybe you're voting no. Maybe you like the one-way aspect. You know, you get off the 403 in the western part of the city, and then you can be in the east end rather quickly. It only takes a few minutes. On the other hand, you know, if you're looking at the business aspect, uh, pedestrian safety, you're going to want a two-way street. Because the benefits, obviously, of a one-way is, yeah, you can get from point A to B rather quickly. The The con uh, of a one-way street is that you don't really look at the businesses on this street, do you? I mean, I don't. Name me five businesses on Maine that you visit regularly. And I'm talking about the one-way portion, not when Maine is two-way. In the one-way portion, not a lot of businesses that you're going to pull over on this five-lane mini-highway in the core of our community and say, I'm going to visit here. There are few and far between. I can think of the Tims near Maine and Dundurn. Obviously, the Dundurn Shopping Plaza. Aside from that, anything downtown, really? I mean, City Hall, you can you can turn into there. Turn left on Summer's Lane if you're going to a concert or maybe finding a parking spot for the hockey game. Aside from that, there's there's not really anything else on my hit list on the one-way Main Street. So that's one of the big, big pluses to convert Main to two ways. I think a lot of more a lot more businesses will get a lot more attention. We've seen it on John Street, we've seen it on James Street. 
Converting those two streets to two-way has been a huge help to businesses on those two streets. What we did see yesterday at City Hall, we saw a couple things. Number one, we saw a major response from councillors, uh, led by Maureen Wilson and Narendra Nan, taking immediate action to improve safety along not only Maine, but King as well. And so they came together, Wilson and Nan, on a motion to ask staff to report back early next year with some kind of plan to convert Maine to two-way through the city's core. And Councillor Wilson said she's responding to a call for action. People want to see this. This is, yes, about neighborhoods. This is, yes, about livelihoods. But more than anything else, this is about saving lives. For her part, Councillor Nan presented this motion in partnership with Wilson, saying that she did so in memory of the recent victims of tragedy. Uh, Many people being hit by vehicles um, because of the lack of safety on these roads. An esteemed maestro, teenagers, seniors, people with disabilities, my sincere condolences to all of their loved ones. We also saw a a protest outside City Hall yesterday. About 100 people or so uh, participated. There was about 50 people that held up traffic in front of City Hall on Main Street to basically highlight their concern. We chatted with one of the protesters, pedestrian advocate Chris Ritzma, on the show yesterday. And he said that they want this to happen. They need to make Main Street and all streets in the city much safer. I don't know necessarily that it's ironic. I think it's symbolic. Um, you know, the, the Main Street that, that is causing issues is Main Street, and it's it's right in front of City Hall. Um, it's maybe ironic that it's, you know, directly in front of uh, in front of the people who are able to tame that street. We're angry about our unsafe streets. We're doing so um, just off of uh, that one of those streets, and it's right in front of City Hall. And uh, I, I think that that's symbolic to the fact that you know city hall is is ignoring what's right in front of them our goal is not to uh was not to inconvenience drivers uh to the point of being unable to go where they're going but it was a point to to kind of bring attention to it and and make our point a little louder they stopped traffic for about six or seven minutes on main just in front of city hall there there was a photo on social media and I, i do have to condemn this you know i applaud them for taking action but when you see a woman on her knees with a baby in her hands uh, that's where I draw the line. There's got to be some kind of law that we can create for protesters to not bring their children to these things. It, it's just, yeah, that rubbed me the wrong way for sure. Uh, so this motion is going to ask staff to identify complete streets improvements that can be taken on Maine and King. And some of the ideas that these councillors want to see is reduce speed limits. So not only will Maine and King be converted ultimately to two-way, but it, uh, it'll it be slower. My guess is, you know, 50K? I don't think you can get any slower on that. Removing parking restrictions? Yeah, we need a lot more parking in the downtown. That's going to help businesses. Whether it's metered or not, or parking garages, or how they go about doing it, we need more parking spaces. And expanded pedestrian space. Yes, Absolutely. We need more spaces for pedestrians and cyclists, for that matter, to get around. How long is this going to take? That is a great question. That's a question I'm going to ask Maureen Wilson when she joins us at 810 this morning, because now we have to get others involved. This is not just a city decision.
Because think about it, when the LRT comes about, that's a Metrolinx project. We have to consult with Metrolinx to say, how do we make this happen much sooner than is currently planned? The other conversation has to be had with the MTL, the Ministry of Transportation, because if we're converting Maine from one-way to two-way, think about the interchange with the 403. You get off the highway near Dundurn, and it's a race to that light, number one, but there has to be a big change with that interchange. Because you can no longer get off on Main uh, from the 403, at least as it's currently built. There is another access to it, obviously. But uh, a discussion with the MTO has to be had. So it's going to take some time. And it's probably not going to happen within months. We're probably talking a couple of years. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You know, I I just believe in, in creating economic development, job creation, we don't need more taxes. We need more people paying taxes. We need more people being employed. That is the voice of PC leader Doug Ford at the election debate earlier on this week. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. A new Abacus data poll shows that despite 48% of respondents wanting to see a change in government... Ontario's PC party is well on its way to winning the June 2nd election. Oksana Kishchuk is a consultant with Abacus Data and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Oksana. How are you today? How are you? I'm good. So we have 40%, uh, 48% of these respondents saying they want to see some kind of change, but the PC party has a comfortable lead in the poll. Is there a disconnect here? What have you found? I think those numbers uh, tend to line up fairly well. I mean, uh, so PCs are starting to sort of pull ahead among some of the other parties. And and when we look at that 48% that want change, it's it's nowhere near the number that wanted change during our last change election. So we can see that that number is around half, but it's it's much more comfortable for the party that's currently in power than the last time we were doing these polls. When it comes to voting intention, uh, it's interesting to note that the Liberals have jumped some points. The NDP has lost some points. What's going on here? Yeah, so when we look at vote intention, PCs are currently at 38% of the vote share. That's a 2% increase, and they're leading now by nine points ahead of the Liberals at 29%, and NDP are at 22%. So I think we're seeing an interesting kind of resettling of of kind of the parties at the top and, and who people are sort of feeling that they're aligning with now that we're sort of past that sort of change election point and it doesn't seem like this election is going to be kind of that major change election that that once was voting demos uh vary quite uh, starkly Vo- younger voters seem to be backing the liberals and the ndp older voters siding with the pcs and we know that the older population tend to actually cast their vote mm-hmm. yeah yeah this kind of sort of fallout of, of votes is, is something that we see at the, the federal level as well. And it's kind of exactly what you mentioned is that there's usually a little bit more of a split among uh, NDP and liberals, among younger voters, but older voters, um, especially in this election and in Ontario, are really taking hold to the PCs. Um, and you're right, they do tend to, to come out and actually put their ballots in those boxes. So that's sort of another indication of, of what's to come as well. Oksana Kischak is a consultant with Abacus Data. Joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, we're chatting about the latest Abacus data poll. I also looked at some of the top issues in the province and which party is best suited to tackle those issues. What did you find? 
Yeah, so top issues uh, continue to be, I'm sure you could sort of guess if you had to rattle off five, what they would be. Uh, cost of living continues to be kind of top of the chart, um, much higher than any other issue. About 60% say it's, it's one of the top three issues that they're going to be voting for. Things like housing affordability, no uh, question there about why that's up there. Improving the healthcare system, usual top top issue there. Keeping taxes up and then growing the economy. And so we find that, that all of these issues kind of continue to be at the forefront of Ontarians, but then also um, that the uh, PC party tends to be leading on a lot of these issues. It's not kind of tied and in a three-way tie, which is important uh, to note. So Ontario uh, PC not only are sort of are running ahead in vote intention, but running ahead in um, what issues people will be voting on. Really interesting numbers when it comes to people's impressions of each party leader. We're seeing some big differences here. Yes, yeah. So we see that the um, impressions for Doug Ford are sort of kind of tied positive and negative but he does hold sort of the most positive impression 38 percent have a positive impression of doug ford and i think it's worth pausing here because we saw quite a bit of a roller coaster for mr ford um from when he was kind of first elected to um throughout uh the covid 19 pandemic it was quite interesting to see as things were changing on the issue and as he was taking action or not um how people were sort of having an impression on of him and so i think he's really had um and obviously being being the leader being the the person that people are looking at the most, he's had the most opportunity to kind of form impressions. And you can really see that there where he's holding that that high positive and, and negative impression. Um, only 30% say they have a positive impression of Andrew Horvath and then 23% of Stephen Del Duca. So he kind of has a disadvantage right now of, of not necessarily having enough awareness for people to form an impression of him. When it comes to 40, as, as you mentioned, a 38% positive rating, a 38% negative rating. So should we read into that, that Ontarians have a love-hate relationship with him? <laughs> I think so. And I think if you look at kind of the, the full chart, it really does go on that roller coaster that I was talking about. I think um, that's kind of the curse for sort of any sort of incumbent um, person is that um, while you have a lot of opportunity to form positive impressions, you also have the same uh, opportunities to form negative. And so people just have a better formed opinion of you, whether it's good or bad. But I think um, compared to if we look at in February 2020, where, where negatives were at 60 percent um, and now at 38, that's that's quite a drop and quite a decline. And so I think kind of that tie between positive and negatives is actually looking pretty good for Mr. Ford right now. Ford has lost uh, a couple of cabinet ministers to political retirement, if you will. It really hasn't <laughs> it really hasn't sunk in the ship or really damaged uh, the, you know, the party's progress. No, not yet. I mean, it's possible that we could sort of pick that up in our next uh, round of polling during this election. And it's possible that sort of more and more um, bits of information, if you will, continue to, to trickle into to the media and the press. Um, but for now, it, it doesn't seem to be swaying kind of that, that main ship at the moment. Interesting numbers. Saksana, thanks for your time today. Thank you. That's Oksana Kischak, uh, consultant with Abacus Data. Several neat and interesting figures. The one that really jumped out to me was that 48% wanting to see change in government, but uh, the PC party doing well in the polls, up and including to the June 2nd election. This coming Monday night at 6.30, commercial-free leaders debate. Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, Stephen Del Duca, Mike Schreiner. You'll be able to listen to it here on 900 CHML. Watch it on Global TV as the four party leaders duke it out for your vote in the first leaders debate uh, that we're going to bring to you on the air. That should be exciting as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. On this vote, the A's are 49, the nays are 51. 
three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative. The motion is not agreed to. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice of American Vice President Kamala Harris, who read the vote tally in the U.S. Senate yesterday, a result that fell short toward enshrining Roe v. Wade abortion access into federal law. And so what does that mean for Roe v. Wade going forward? Let's ask our next guest. He's the Washington correspondent with Global News, Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. How are you? Good morning. Uh, Kamala Harris sounded quite disheveled in that audio clip when she read out the results of yesterday's vote tally. Did uh, this vote go down along party lines? Uh, it, it, it did, uh, with the exception of one Democrat who also joined in with Republicans. And the trivia on that is that uh, the vice president reading out that final roll call there uh, because the vice president acts as the president of the Senate and she would be called upon to break a tie vote if it had been 50-50. But because it wasn't, because one Democrat joined with the Republicans, it was a moderate Democrat who oftentimes uh, kind of leans more towards the conservative side of politics. This didn't pass. It wasn't expected to pass. Democrats didn't have anything close to the votes needed to get through the 60 vote filibuster. So this was just an exercise to try and put Republican lawmakers on the record because it's an election year. After the vote, uh, President Joe Biden was quick to uh, criticize Senate Republicans for standing in the way of what he called Americans' rights and called on voters to elect more pro-choice lawmakers when the midterms are held later on this year. If that happens, could this bill be reintroduced? It's possible that it could be uh, reintroduced, uh, you know, but it is still likely going to be a long shot here because in order to enact new law in the United States to get it through the Senate, it needs to overcome a 60-vote filibuster. And if the Republicans uh, manage to either A, get more wins and possibly secure control of the Senate, or if Democrats aren't able to elect another 10 Democratic senators, any bill uh, or legislation that this administration tries to put forward is going to repeatedly find itself up against a wall of Republican resistance. On the flip side of this, Rick, Republicans have already said if they take control later this year, they will fully get rid of the filibuster and put through whatever legislation they want. And that could include a national ban on abortion. So you have Republicans playing some kind of dirty tricks here that Democrats don't want to play with Democrats now being criticized for not playing that same game. We're talking about uh, the U.S. Senate vote yesterday on Roe v. Wade and abortion access uh, being enshrined into federal law with our guest Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Now, we know that yesterday's vote came after a draft Supreme Court opinion um, that would overturn the landmark ruling was leaked. What happens now? When does all this take uh, effect? Well, so we still don't know what's ultimately going to happen. As you mentioned, it's a draft leaked uh, memo, or it was a leaked draft memo. We don't know ultimately if all five of the um, conservative-leaning justices are going to fall on side with Justice Samuel Alito in overturning Roe versus Wade. There is still you know, time here for public pressure to potentially weigh on the shoulders of these justices, especially with protests now happening on the regular outside uh, of their homes in and around Washington. But ultimately, if this does come to fruition, it will likely take place sometime towards the end of June, at the end uh, of the of the judicial calendar here, uh, which is really going to give more time for both sides to dig their heels in. And it will you know, kind of help to amplify Democrats' message to the voting base that this November, with rights on the line and potentially more rights on the line, uh, leave this up to the voters at the ballot box to to ensure that they can can step in where legislators can't. 
if the Supreme Court goes ahead with its decision, all signs do point to that. This is a battle that's going to be played out in state courthouses across the U.S., right? Absolutely it is, because if Roe versus Wade is overturned, it doesn't really kind of strip the land of the ability to carry out abortion procedures. What it does is throw it back to the state legislatures, and then the states themselves are going to be the ones who ultimately make the decision as to whether or not abortion access will be provided in that state. It will likely face some form of legal challenge if uh, there is uh, an ability to go forward with that. But because 26 states are already planning to claw back on restrictions uh, and potentially put bans in place, and 13 states have trigger laws where as soon as the Supreme Court strikes something down, it automatically goes into play here. There is a combination of very little time and at least some time for abortion providers and for the legal world to try and figure this out. But because this leaked, you know, within the last couple of weeks and Republicans are critical of the leak, Democrats are saying, look, you know, we're actually thankful for this leak because A, we see what Republicans are doing, but B, this can give us time to try and figure out a response. All the while here in Canada, the federal government's uh, committing more than three and a half million dollars to a couple of groups to help improve access to abortion services. How is the the whole situation in the U.S. Uh, playing out in terms of foreign policy? Is it making an impact at all? I mean, uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it it you know what happens in the United States can oftentimes have an impact around the world, uh, and it can oftentimes uh, play into you know how the conversation uh, is going forward. But ultimately, because this is such a new and unexpected top line domestic item right now, and the rest of the world really is watching to see how the United States is going to play through with this, uh, you know, this is going to become uh, an issue of conversation for the next several weeks, if not the next several months. And while you have, uh, you know, Canada making these commitments, the United States is really watching the private sector start to step in. You're seeing, uh, you know, uh, corporations like Planned Parenthood now seeing these massive influx of donations in order to ensure that they're able to continue to provide these services. Uh, but this is a huge and unexpected domestic policy, which is now really kind of stepping into, uh, you know, the spotlight that, uh, that, that, that the president's foreign policy platform has been dealing with when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Very interesting times down south. Reggie, as always, appreciate your time today. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent with Global News, giving us a recap of yesterday's vote in the U.S. Senate, uh, falling short toward uh, enshrining Roe v. Wade uh, abortion access into federal law. It's a story that will continue to follow in the weeks and months to come. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, saying it would lead to worse service and higher prices, Canada's Competition Bureau wants to stop Rogers Communications from gobbling up Shaw Communications. Here to dive into this topic is Brett Chang, the co-host of the Peak Daily Podcast. Brett, good morning. How are you? Morning, Rick. It's great to be with you again. I'm good. Yeah, great to have you on the show once again, because this is a kind of a complex topic. So how much pull, we'll start with this, how much pull does the Competition Bureau have in, in stopping this deal from going ahead? It's got a lot of pull. So for the deal to happen, it requires the approval of three different bodies. So the CRTC, which has already received conditional approval from, it receives it needs to receive approval from the Competition Bureau, and it needs to receive approval from the minister's office. And so there's three different bodies that have to approve it. So the Competition Bureau could veto the whole thing. So the Competition Bureau pointing to things like we're going to have worse service, uh, we're going to have higher prices. Does it have to prove that that is going to happen, or is that just an opinion of theirs? Yeah, so it has to. Its opinion is based on the analysis that it's done of the market landscape, and basically what they've looked at was 
in particular Freedom Mobile, which is a was formerly independent. It was bought by Shaw, and likely many of your listeners may have realized that Freedom Mobile often has some of the lowest rates in the telecom sector in Canada, and so they've consistently brought rates down just by being a, a competitive force against the big three telco providers. So they look at all of the evidence and what the, what's been happening with the market over the past few years, and they make a determination on whether it's good or bad for customers, which is the ultimate test. So Rogers and Shaw, it sounds like they still want to push ahead. How do they get this deal done? Well, the key is going to be selling Freedom Mobile. So they're going to have to sell Freedom Mobile to a body that can authoritatively say that they have the resources and the infrastructure available to be a meaningful competitor to Bell, Rogers, and Telus. Now, there are a number of different buyers uh, available to them, but there's actually very few that can make that case strongly, and that's the Competition Bureau is going to look for. So how quickly does this process occur? Are we talking within the next few months? Is it going to be sometime next year? What kind of timeline should we expect? It's really hard to say, but there, one thing is for sure, uh, Rogers and Shaw want this deal to happen as soon as possible. And so they're now rushing, looking for a buyer, and they're in discussions with uh, a few different potential buyers about taking on uh, Freedom Mobile. But it's got a bit more complicated by the Competition Bureau's analysis, only because the Competition Bureau has essentially raised the standards that they're looking for in that buyer to make sure that Freedom Mobile remains competitive. Brett Chang is the co-host of The Peak Daily. You can listen to The Peak Daily podcast snippet at 7.27 a.m. and 4.27 p.m. Monday to Friday here on 900 CHML. You can check them out online at readthepeak.com. Is there any precedence when, uh, you know, the CRTC, the Competition Bureau, is looking at this acquisition to say, all right, this worked before, we should do the exact same thing this time around? Do they look at past experiences when going forward with new uh, takeovers? They do. And, you know, I think a lot of analysts would point to the fact that the Competition Bureau has been historically fairly weak on these types of deals. The Competition Bureau is not a body that's been known to to be to kill uh, deals that have landed on their desk. And so they, as the culture shifts and people become more critical of big business, they're out moving with that, which is why it's a bit surprising focus that they're taking on this deal. But it's not unsurprising in that mobile rates are such a hot topic for so many people that they feel obligated to ensure that rates remain low in this country. They're already some of the highest. We, we pay already some of the highest in the world. So it sounds like somehow, some way, sometime, this deal is going to get done. What is it going to mean for consumers? Well, you know, it really depends on who buys Freedom Mobile. And there's a few different buyer, potential buyers at play here. So one is Fideotron. So that's the Quebec-based telco. They have a whole range of offerings that they provide primarily in eastern Ontario and Quebec. They're looking to go nationwide. They participated in the last Spectrum auction. So they're probably the top buyer. They're Canadian-owned. The second biggest uh, opportunity would be ExploreNet. ExploreNet, they focus mainly on rural Internet, and so they provide satellite dishes to rural communities to then connect to to the Internet. They're a, a potential buyer that's been floated by Rogers and Shaw. However, they're primarily owned by U.S. private equity, so that's a bit of an issue. And then the third potential buyer is Anthony, Anthony LaCrevera. Anthony LaCrevera originally started WinMobile, which became Freedom Mobile when he sold to Shaw. He wants to now buy it back, and he's also a strong contender for the bid. If the right buyer comes along and makes Freedom as strong as it once was, then there should, for consumers, 
be a downward pressure on prices. Got a couple more minutes with Brent Chang, the co-host of The Peak Daily. Check them out online, readthepeak.com. You can listen to them via podcast by subscribing to The Peak Daily Podcast and also hear a snippet here and there on 900 CHML at 727 a.m. and 427 p.m. Monday to Friday. In one of The Peak Daily uh, snippets today, we heard about Michigan guides in Toronto. This is kind of cool. Yeah, it's a really big deal. You know, I don't know about you, Rick, but I, I've had many people ask me before if I've ever been to a Michelin star restaurant, and my answer is always no, uh, usually because they're selective to certain cities and very high-end restaurants, but now that's coming to Toronto. So this worldwide standard for luxury and fine dining uh, is coming to the city, and they're going to pick a handful of restaurants that they think are worthy of one, two, or three Michelin stars, and it's super exciting for the city and for the country at large, and I'm excited to see what they put on the list. When I'm asked whether or not I visited a Michelin-rated restaurant, I say no because, well, basically the price tag. When you're looking at entrees at like $200 and $300, a little out of my price range. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, I think what a lot of people are hoping for, though, is that the Michelin Guide in at least Toronto will go off to some of the more affordable but great places that we have in the city. You know, Chinese restaurants in Markham, Indian restaurants in Brampton, and maybe discover some of those hidden gems that we might actually have the opportunity to go out and eat at. That'd be kind of cool. Brett, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Rick. Have a good one. You too. That's Brett Chang, co-host of The Peak Daily. Find them on the World Wide Web, readthepeak.com. Listen to them at 727 a.m. and 427 p.m. right here on 900 CHML. Or subscribe to The Peak Daily podcast in your favorite podcast platform. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A passenger on a single-engine Cessna plane in Florida was forced to land the aircraft after the pilot became incapacitated. They're thinking that he suffered a medical issue. This is what it sounded like when the pilot radioed air traffic control. I've got a serious situation here. My pilot has gone into here. I have no idea how to fly the airplane, but I'm going to stay in 9100. 333 Lima Delta, Roger. What's your position? I have no idea. I see the coast of Florida in front of me, and I have no idea. What was the situation with the pilot? He is incoherent. He is out. Number three, Lehman Delta. Roger, uh, try to hold the wings level and see if you can start uh, descending for me. Uh, push forward on the uh, controls and uh, descend at a very slow rate. That was the start of their conversation as the air traffic controller, who's also a pilot and a certified flight instructor, Talk this passenger down to a safe landing, believe it or not. Dave Rohr is the president and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum and has many hours in an aircraft as a pilot. Dave, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Good to be with you. This sounds like a scene out of a movie. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's the last thing you'd ever want to happen when you're the only passenger in a single pilot airplane. But uh, thankfully, the stars were aligned. So this aircraft was a single-engine Cessna 208. Is that an? If there's an easy plane to fly, is that it? Uh, no, it's a it's a sophisticated airplane. Actually, it's one of the larger airplanes, uh, turboprops that Cessna makes. It's it's used quite a bit uh, in large uh, air uh, float operations to carry you know ten, twelve passengers. Uh, it was flying from the Bahamas to Florida and probably would carry normally more than just one passenger. It's a turboprop, so it's a very uh, a modern airplane, good avionics, and uh, 
it flies like a basic airplane, which is a blessing, but uh, but it's not an entry-level airplane by any means. So paint a picture for us as this individual is jumping into the cockpit area. What is he having to deal with? What is he looking at? Well, he uh, first of all, he would have been probably sitting in the front seat, the front right seat next to the pilot, which is yeah, that's that in itself is a blessing. So he's at, he's at the controls. It's a dual control airplane. So he's sitting at the cock in the cockpit, and he has controls in front of him. So he's uh, uh, he's a pretty cool customer when you listen to the conversation because and he and he has some knowledge, which is really beneficial because when he's sitting in the airplane, they're probably on headsets and they're talking to each other by pushing the buttons on the yoke to actually talk to each other. So that helps him be able to communicate to air traffic control when the pilot uh, becomes incapacitated and tell him, tell them that he's in trouble. Uh, so that's a that's a good thing. Uh, now beyond that, he's probably maybe watched the pilot uh, put the power up when they took off and maybe adjust the power when they leveled off somewhere around eight nine thousand feet. So he's a I think he's a pretty observant individual, which uh, in this case turned out very well, uh, but. He still is in uh, in a in a very bad situation, and uh, it just works out, you know, that there were so many things that turned out right. Uh, for example, the air traffic controller, who wasn't even supposed to work that day, had changed his shift and had 20 years flight experience as a flight instructor. And so he's got the and he's not flown this type of airplane, but he's got the he's got the smarts to go get a picture of the cockpit so he can actually identify the controls and then talk to this individual and tell them what those controls are and what to do that in itself was a blessing the other thing was that they were both very cool in a very tense situation and they were using their heads and and that saved the day as well the other thing that's a real good thing about this is that you were the weather was good they were flying from the bahamas to florida it was a beautiful day like it is today here and that was a blessing. If it had been in cloud and uh, instrument flight conditions, it might have been a different story. But, but, and the other thing is that they were going towards Florida. So, you know, to be able to figure out where you are, uh, you know, you're going towards Florida. It's the only landmass in front of you. You can see it for miles. So that's a blessing. So you have the visual reference uh, to where you are. You don't know where you are. Obviously, you didn't know where he was. But, uh, they could identify him through some maneuvering on radar and identify the airplane, pick his, then identify where he was, and then start to give him some directions to to get to Palm uh, Beach International Airport. The stars Every, were, yeah, the stars were certainly aligned there. Absolutely, and uh, and then of course uh, he he just did an absolutely wonderful job, and uh, the the controller uh, obviously gave him a very you know, bite-sized information, not overloading them with too much detail, but just telling them what the essentials were that he needed. You know, for example, when the initial descent, just push the control column forward, start a gentle descent. The fact that that he identified that he was descending at about 500 feet per minute tells me that this individual was a very observant individual, and he could actually look at the instrumentation, the, the vertical speed indicator, and know what it meant. That, that again, you know, it was the right person in in this challenging situation with the right controller so it was uh you know it turned out really well for everybody uh, but it, but these two individuals uh, deserve one heck of a lot of credit absolutely dave we got to run appreciate your time today thanks for joining us this morning all the best have a great uh, day you too that's dave Rohr, president and ceo of the canadian warplane heritage museum hey while you're at it go check out the museum they got a lot of great things to see 
and do. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.